Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hey, this is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm excited to be here today uh, with my good friend, Amanda Fabrizio Grezik from Tennessee Tech University. Amanda, how are you? Good. Doing well, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for being with us today. I know you're, you're busy out on the road talking to donors today, so I appreciate you making time for us. Absolutely. I'm very happy to do that. Before we jump into to, uh, any of the questions I have for you, I'd love if you just take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing. Sure. So I was born and raised outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, where I went to college, started working at Lehigh University as a um, industrial and systems engineering department communication specialist. So very early on in my career, had the opportunity to work with faculty and staff and really get them involved with the kind of the softer side of stuff when it comes to fundraising and communications and communicating with your donors and your alumni. From there, I went to Immaculata University where I was doing annual giving. My now husband got a job in New York, so we moved out to Long Island, and I was at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn for a year doing similar work. And then he got a call uh, to apply for the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga job, being an associate dean, and he asked me, you know, what do you think about Chattanooga, Tennessee? And I said, well, I don't know, apply for it, not thinking we would move to Tennessee. Uh, Four and a half years later, (laughs) going on year five uh, in next January, uh, it's kind of crazy how quickly time went. From there, I looked for positions in fundraising and got hired at Tennessee Tech, being the major gift fundraiser for the College of Engineering. Um, since then, my portfolio has changed where it now includes College of Ag and education, and then I have an entire region to go fundraise for when I'm out of Tennessee. So that's kind of what I've been doing in a, in a nutshell awesome. for the past, for the past like, I think I've been out of college now for 12 years. So that's the past 12 years. <laughs> so what I learned from that is the phrase, I don't know, apply for it. Those are like the famous last words then, right? Yeah. <laughs> but the one, the one the part that we really, and I was on uh, the Lehigh Valley with Love podcast, which is where we were when we met when I was at Lehigh and he was working at Lehigh. I told them that Chattanooga and Lehigh have a very similar story where industry has left and now they're in this rebirth and Chattanooga is very very in the same ship that the Lehigh Valley is in so when he said that to me I said great let's go we were dead living with the Manhattan and and the Bronx and Brooklyn and everywhere else we're like let's go let's let's go down the south where we have a little bit milder of of winters so I I would say so kind of nice yeah (laughs) so I want to jump into a topic that you and I were talking about before we got on the podcast it's somewhat specific to, I guess, academia, but I think it probably has some crossover value for anybody who has to work with program staff or, or you know, even in the medical community has to work with physicians. And, and that's the idea of the, the challenges that, that somebody like you faces in getting alignment with academic staff and colleagues to support fundraising. What, what kind of challenges have you run into in that arena? Oh, it's so funny because you always hear about the rogue faculty member that's going to go out and go talk to companies and donors with and then the development office shows up and they're just like you were just here like a week ago (laughs) we're just like no no we weren't so that (laughs) you all we always hear those stories and those stories do happen I think every institution whether it's dealing with doctors or with faculty you hear those similar stories so one of the things that has been 
working for me over the past couple of years is making sure you're working with the leadership of that school. So right when I started at Tech, I made sure I met with my dean almost immediately within the first month or so that I started working there. And I had an office actually in the dean's office, which was great at that time. Since then, I moved around a little bit. But now what I try to do is I meet with the leadership of the, like the deans monthly. So during those meetings, what we try to do is we talk about what we've been working on in terms of donors or what big trips we have coming up, if they know anybody in those areas that we should go visit or they can come with us, but also to keep in touch with what's happening in their worlds, what big events are coming up, what questions do they have about certain endowments, what certain faculty members are getting awards that we don't even realize. Hmm. And with that, it does a couple of things. One, it helps us build the conversation when we're with our donors and talking about what's happening in that major that they may be attached to. Two, it builds that relationship with your faculty and with the faculty leadership. So if you have any questions or you need anything from the deans, they're more likely to have your back and be supportive when it comes to that. And three, ultimately they'll start coming to you if they have fundraising questions. So instead of them going rogue, they're at the point where they're coming over and they're talking to you about, oh, hey, this company came up and talked to me, but I'm not sure what to do. So it's, <laughs> those are the fun questions. Those are the fun questions that I like to get and answer and kind of help them coach them a little bit through it because they're not fundraisers and we are not the engineers, agriculturalists, educators in that sense. So we have to learn from each other give and take. For sure. So do you, have you found that by engaging at that, you know, sort of senior level with the deans, that that mm -hmm. heads off any other challenges with, I don't want to call them lower level staff, but with, with, you know, other professors. Chairs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you have to, do you do the same thing at every level or, or how, do, how do you work that? So I tried to, and this, when I just had the one college, I was able to do the departments twice a year. So okay. I would make sure at the end of each, at the end or the beginning of each semester, I went and met with the department chairs. And it's also to let them know, hey, I'm still here. Uh, don't forget about me. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I might not be in your building all the time, but I am indeed here. And they've been really supportive with that. And since I've been working with them for so long, again, it's building that, that, that rapport with them. And they're coming back and talking to me about stuff. Or if they're noticing other things that are happening within the faculty, they'll come and measure to be like, say, hey, just a heads up, this professor is working on this, or they're planning on visiting with that. And then myself and my colleagues can kind of help in and work with that, work, that, work with that relationship and communication along the way. Plus, I also am able to connect the donors directly to some of the department chairs and faculty members as well, because some of them are still around when they were in school. So they love that, and they love that connectivity between both of them. So it does have a trickle-down effect, and we've been seeing that in multiple different layers, whether it's engaging their advisory councils or going with us on visits or even making their own gifts during our faculty staff campaign. Like that mm. stuff has been fantastic. And some of our staff members, we had our first faculty staff campaign in about 25 years at Tech this past spring. And what I started to see was some of the department chairs were challenging the faculty to make a gift and they'll match it. And I was just like, that is so cool. And I was so proud of them because of it, then they knew how to contact me and say, Amanda, I don't know how to do this. Where do I bring this money to? <laughs> so, which is, I have no problem telling them where to bring it. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that I'm happy that, that it's, they are really now 
getting that sense of philanthropic thought process in, in their heads. I mean, because that's not their first job. Their job is to educate our students. So for sure, it's, it's really awesome to see that trickle down effect. So what thoughts or insights would you share? Like if there's somebody who's new in the seat, right? So brand new frontline fundraiser, trying to, trying to get established, get a lay of the land at their organization. What are the best sort of first steps in, in starting that process? Of, of connecting with the, um, yeah. with their unit. So, well, first of all, you got to make sure you have what I, what I know has kind of worked for me and some of my other colleagues in the past is making sure that you at least have your processes set up over on the advancement side. So with gift agreements and where do checks get deposited and all those other backbones, you need those before you can go in and really speak to the leadership because they're going to ask you questions when it comes to that stuff and you're going to need to know the answers because you're their point person mostly and you're building that relationship to be that liaison. I would then become friends, of course, with their admins. These people are those good gatekeepers and they'll get you in the door. So if you have to have an emergency meeting with your dean or your department chair, these, and most of them are women, they are the ones that will get you in to meet with them. So I always make sure to include them on communications, include them when it comes to scheduling so that they're aware of what's going on. I have two new deans coming in, one for engineering, one for ag and human ecology uh, next week at tech and I'm already have reached out to their admins who I already have the relationship with and they're like Amanda they're kind of slammed for the first month <laughs> is there any way we could push you to August and I said that's fine if you could squeeze me in earlier that would be appreciated as well but they know that how they see the importance of fundraising awesome. with that so those relationships are very important one of the things that I that I've seen or that has worked also for me is making sure you prepare your faculty and some of our administration, so our VP of Student Affairs, our AVP of Multicultural Affairs. I had about an hour meeting with them right before we went to DC, just to kind of go through who we're meeting with, where are we going, when we need to leave, what questions we need to ask these people, and then also have bios on these people. Because if we don't prep them for those meetings, we're not doing our job either. And I think they really appreciate that and they can see those successes when they ask for a major gift and the person says yes, because that proper background work was done before. So those are the kind of things I think for a frontliner, for a first timer to kind of make sure you build those relationships with your faculty, get in front of them, go to the faculty meetings. I make sure I try to go to the college faculty meetings at least once a year, maybe twice if I'm able to, just to tell them this is where we're at fundraising wise. This is where we're heading. This is what I'm doing. If you have any questions, please feel free to come call, give me a call or shoot me an email. And that again builds the relationship with the other faculty members if they have a relationship with an alum or a donor that they know they have that point of contact of who to come work with. Awesome, thank you. I think that's great insight. I wanna shift gears a little bit. So sure. you, you blog, right? I do, yes. What, what's your blog? It is the Fab Fundraising blog and it's fabfundraising.blogspot.com been writing on it a little bit over a year and one of the some of the topics that I write about are course fundraising and how to pack for a trip how to <laughs> get your first meeting some donor success stories leadership and higher ed mostly and I just kind of pick up on some of the upcoming trends that I'm noticing in higher ed or in leadership that people have been talking about um, okay. I haven't talked about so one of the things that I have coming up is a blog post about job postings and I call them the, fa the phantom job posts because you look at them, you read the job posting and you're like, okay, I'm totally qualified for this. 
But then when you go in and apply or after you apply and someone calls you back, they're like, you're not qualified because we're looking for X, Y, or Z experience. And I'm like, <laughs> why don't you have that on your application, like on, on the, the, the perspective? I couldn't believe it. So I have a whole, and I actually asked a couple of my recruiter friends about that and they, and they're like, well, it helps us build the pool a little bit more. I'm like, but no, it shoots a lot of people's dreams down really That's quickly. So, yeah. I, <laughs> so I have, I, I have like, so I have posts up about that, but also things that are happening with either leadership style, Me Too movement, communication is obviously the big tying connector throughout my blog. So okay. that, that's been something that that's been the main focus area. Cool. So I, I you, you mentioned Me Too movement. Um, yes. Just going to put you on the spot. I know we didn't talk about this earlier, but how do you see that unfolding in our sector? Because, you know, we, we saw big splashes in the entertainment yeah. industry and in sports and mm -hmm. in the corporate world, but it's, it's been fairly silent across the yeah. circuit. Talk about uh, that for a second. Yeah, that's a good, thanks for putting me on the spot. We didn't talk about this. <laughs> um, I really think that it, something might be coming, like, especially when it comes to nonprofits and higher ed. It, higher ed in particular has been kind of cracking at the, at the seams a little bit more with looking at it under a microscope when it comes to the cost of going versus what return you're gonna get with a job and certain other things I know we're going to discuss, but. I think slowly but surely things will start to unravel or mm. things will start to come under pressure. And it depends on the school. It depends on what type of culture it is. I hate to bring up Penn State, but look what happened at Penn State. That's I'm a Penn State fan. Yep. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, and I love Penn State. I am a fan because I grew up in the state and that's, that's the school that I cheer for when it comes to football, if it's not Tennessee. And one of the things that – it really put a damper on college athletics, but at the same time, though, it really had a deeper discussion with all the other institutions surrounding that area. And I was at Lehigh at the time, where there was like a full auditorium of people just worried because there are a lot of programs that we do with students that are K through 12. And it's like, what do we do? Or what's the proper protocol? Because no one has talked about this before. Sure. So I think if anything, something's going to happen where it's going to be the the uh, the breaking point, and then floodgates will open and more things will come out. That's what I think we're probably kind of gearing towards a little bit more. So so maybe a question that should have been a precursor question, but I thought of it now. Do you see just from from your experience and and the conversations you're having? Do you see this as uh, an issue where the nonprofit sector is uh, ahead of the curve and doing better, and therefore it's not as much of an issue, or have we just been reluctant to address it? I, I don't, I, I, and it depends on which nonprofit sector you're looking at. Like the small shops, they don't have time to look at that stuff, I feel, because they're trying to, <laughs> Stay alive, sure. yeah, they're trying to keep it, the door afloat. And I think it just depends on, on the organization. I don't think it's that we haven't really focused on it as much. I think it's because there's so many other things going on that, yes, it's mindful to most of us, but I also feel that it hasn't been appropriately addressed yet when it comes to either nonprofit or higher ed. Okay, cool. Does that, does that make sense? Is that I, I think it does, yeah, yeah. It'll be, um, it'll be really interesting as this unfolds. And if, it, if the bubble bursts, you got to come back and have another conversation yeah. about that. Absolutely, 110%, yes. Another area that I wanted to touch on is the, the idea of, of you know, how, how does a fundraiser 
effectively transition, you know, and sort of transplant, mm-hmm. right? So you, you yourself mm-hmm. grew up in the, in the Northeast, Philly and New York, and now you're working out of Chattanooga. Um, and I, I was right. in New York last week, and I've spent a lot of time in Chattanooga working with the food bank down there. I know they are mm-hmm. different places, right? Yes. So talk to me yes. about how, how you were able to successfully sort of bridge those two very mm-hmm. different, not just geographies, but really cultures, and what you yeah. see as some of the biggest challenges for fundraisers who make that kind of leap. Oh, wow. I think I'm still learning. <laughs> that hasn't completely finished yet. One of the things that I know when I first came on board, they were like, Amanda's really loud and she, <laughs> and she goes really fast. And that's something that even you think I was fast now, you should have seen me when I was like a teenager. It was, it was just like nonstop chatter. Um, I think my husband will say it probably still is, but um, that's besides the point. So I think if anything being, it's like a 50, 50, it's a really, it's again, it's another relationship. You really need to learn how to balance the cultural differences between the two. So for example, I am very blunt when it comes to some things, when it's trying to just get something across to somebody. However, some of my Southern colleagues are like, Ooh, that's, that's harsh. That's a little much. And I'm like, no, it's just being honest and not beating around the bush. That's something I really had to get used to. And they had to get used to me as well. There are certain things that we would say or do like even saying like hell, they do not like listening to that. But sometimes I would tell them, look, just tell me, I don't know these things. I'm new to the office, just tell me. And, and sometimes it might be just as easy as me having that conversation with them and telling them that and apologizing, saying, look, I didn't realize I offended you, but thank you for finally letting me know that that's gonna come out. It may come out again, and I don't mean anything by it, but I'm gonna try and tailor myself as much as possible. Um, but that's, that's kind of been the, the balancing act that I've had to do. It's, and it's very much cultural differences. You know, in the Northeast, we're very fast. We very much focus on work a lot of the time. While in the South, it's very much a fair balance between work and family life. For example, I was in Pennsylvania, my hometown, for about a week and a half. Half of it was there working and the other half was there, you know, visiting family, going to a wedding, spending some time with high school friends. And uh, I got home and I realized my grandfather has stage four cancer. And I was only told stage two and I just kind of went, okay, this is a different week than what I was expecting. So I immediately messaged my supervisor and some of my colleagues and said, Hey, just an FYI, this is going on. And they're like, you do what you have to do. So I made sure I did all my visits. I did all my work, but then the rest of the time was kind of reserved either for spending time with my grandparents or, spending time with family and friends and they, and they understand that, especially since I'm so far away from them, they were really respectful and, and, and lenient with that. So that's something that's really nice to have that balance between the two. Yeah. So, okay. Two follow-ups on that. One is has adjusting to this cultural difference. Has that also crossed over into how you, how you deal with, with donors as well? Mm, talk to me okay. a little bit about that. Okay. It depends on the donor because you have to go at the donor's pace. I think sometimes I, they take their, and I still have my bulk of my portfolio is still engineers. I mean, because engineering is probably uh, one of the largest majors okay. we have at Tennessee Tech. Which is and, a totally different culture unto itself. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. So I think they're kind of happy when they're like, oh, she's worked with engineers before. So she totally knows <laughs> what she's doing. And I'm like, not all the time, but thank you for thinking that I do. <laughs> 
I, I, you do have to go with the donor speed, and that's anywhere in the country compared to, you might have a 20 minute donor visit in Los Angeles or in New York City, but you could spend three or four hours with the retiree school teacher, you know, having yep. lunch and drinking coffee and tea with them in the afternoon. It, it really does depend a little bit. When I talk to them on the phone, I have to make sure I enunciate a little more and I make sure I slow down because okay. they won't catch everything. Cause they're like, okay, what's your name again? Just, <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure they know it, it, it's definitely me and somebody from Tennessee tech. But at the same time though, I, cause sometimes the draw can be a little thick. I have to, I have to also make sure I ask them to repeat themselves hmm. so that I'm getting all the information correct and being transparent about it and saying, um, can you repeat that? I kind of missed that a little bit. And they're more than happy to, to do that. So especially with the donors and, Every donor, regardless of where they're at, they'll go at their own pace. Yeah, for sure. Um, and working, working with them on what works best for them, what's most beneficial for them, but also they, how they accomplish their philanthropic needs. So that's something that I think that's across the board the same. Okay. And, and then that, that second follow-up, what do you think that senior leadership, so you know, presidents, senior faculty members, board members, what, what could they do, you know, if, if we're being proactive here, you know, if we turn the clock back to your, your first week and the, and the 30 days before it, they knew that they were going to hire you. They knew that you were, you know, coming in from a, a, a totally different geography and culture. What could people in those roles do to more effectively prepare on the ground hmm. to support somebody, a frontline fundraiser who's coming in and having to make some of those big cultural shifts or really any employee? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the thing. I, we have, even somebody that's coming from nonprofit to higher ed or somebody coming from sales to, to doing fundraising work. I think if anything, you need to have that mentor or you need to have that person that can be rela relatable. When I, I mean, I, there wasn't until afterwards, but after a couple months, but I realized that some of my colleagues in another building, or like we're born and raised in a neighboring town that I grew up in. And we didn't realize that until like three or six months later. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense why you're so, we're so much alike when it comes to like <laughs> keeping at each other's speed and whatnot. I was asked like senior leadership to kind of look at their team and say, who would be a good mentor for this person or who would they be able to connect to so that they can get more appropriately acquainted with the town and also the university. Cause you got to remember they're being a member of this community as well. Sure. Um, and that's a and that's a big thing. And then, um, like, we're looking for two fundraisers right now ourselves to come in, but we also know some people are going to have to move to Cookville, which is a thirty thousand person town in between Nashville and Knoxville, Tennessee, which is smaller compared to the metropolitans that are around us. So, being able to be that person and help them with that transition to this area, and if they're coming in from sales or from another background, it's just going to take time for them to learn it and to get a hold of it, but also to be patient with them. And that mentor is there to help answer questions and do introductions. So I would recommend to senior leadership, if you don't have someone to do all the onboarding, ask them, ask a fellow team member to be a mentor for them, because that also helps with their leadership skills as they progress throughout their career. That's a great point. Yeah. I like that. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot again for a different yes. reason. <laughs> so I, I think you, you know, or at least know of Jason Lewis, who wrote i have i have been on his podcast before oh, so yes so, so you know yep. jason um, yes. war for fundraising talent is his book yep. so recently he's been he's, he's been talking about some of these large gifts that have primarily gone to 
to higher education institutions that um, mm -hmm. have either, for one reason or another, the institution has given the gift back or the mm -hmm. donor has come and, and asked to, to essentially claw the gift back. And the most recent was the example in Alabama around the, mm -hmm. um, the, the new abortion legislation there. And, yep. and so, yep. you know, I, I'm curious to get your take on this idea of really major donors and mega donors to, to some degree being at odds at times with the institutions they support and, and mm -hmm. what the, you know, what are the big risks there and what do you see as a way forward to maintaining healthy relationships between institution and donor? Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know what, and when you get into some of the state schools, well, let me rephrase that, any school has politics. It's going to be anywhere, and any organization is going to have politics, unfortunately. And the thing that's interesting with Alabama, and I use this because I did write a blog about keeping focus on what you need to be focusing on. So my husband and I visited Selma and Montgomery okay. uh, last month to do the Civil Rights Trail. Oh, cool. And it was cool. I totally recommend people going to it. Montgomery, which is the capital of Alabama, and Selma are dying cities. There is less than 17,000 people in Selma, several boarded up homes and buildings, and Montgomery is not much better. We were walking around one weekend, and we're literally asking each other, where is everybody? We had no idea. So then when this ab abortion law came out, I kind of went, Okay, I, I get it. It's a conservative state, but I'm like, ma'am, have you walked into your backyard recently and kind of seen the detrimental area that's happening with those two towns? So that's that's what I meant by you got to keep focus on what's really happening sure. in your state because it's it ain't that. <laughs> it ain't that. You shouldn't be focusing on that, and that and that's where the politics come in. So when it comes to and then right after that, we visited a friend of ours at the University of Alabama. We've never been, we've never seen the university. We really wanted to go and visit it. And this was before everything broke about their law school, law school's name being taken down. As my friend put it, gently put it, uh, they print money there, which is true. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful campus. Some of these fraternity and sorority houses look like they are gorgeous Airbnbs you would see in New Orleans. Mm. They, I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. It is insane how much goes into that school. And with that, when I heard about this donor removing it, removing his name and telling people not to go there because of the new abortion law and whatnot, I kind of went, there's more stuff underlying that that they're not reporting on or they don't know about it yet. So, and plus, that's why we always say we need to make sure we have a good gift agreement or any type of letter of agreement or whatnot in place when it comes to those gifts that the donor and the institution can agree on so that we're not doing muddying the waters between the donor giving so much power when it comes to the gift. Cause then it's really not a gift. Is it a gift when they give, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not there. Yeah. It almost feels more like a political contribution where you're saying Correct. I'm giving this mm -hmm. gift to advance a policy initiative, right. Or, or to announce advance a particular mm -hmm. position on a, on a subject, which is much different than right. what you would think of in traditional philanthropy. Absolutely. And, and so when that happened, and as I'm reading through it, I'm just like, I wonder what is in the background that we're not seeing in terms of what does the paperwork say? Or is there any paperwork with it? Or is the paperwork still not completed? And they're still going back and forth with him about what they can and cannot do with his money. Hmm. So I, I for one, am saying 
if there's too many if there's too many lines attached to it and you really need to go to the donor and ask them for support and whatnot or can I do this or X Y or Z with this amount of money I don't blame the University of Alabama for giving it back just because it's to a point where I'm like it's not a philanthropic gift anymore it's not yeah and I, I think this it sucks but it's not it's it sucks for the law school but it, it's not a philanthropic Right. Anymore. It's almost a no interest loan at that point. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then the debt, you know? Yeah. And I mean, any, any, any decision a university makes, it'll be good or bad for fundraising. It'll affect fundraising one way or another. And we sure. all know that. And I mentioned Penn State earlier. I mean, there were people that were either burning their diplomas or they were putting money towards their academic unit. So it was mm -hmm. a very extreme from one end to another. And I see that happening with Alabama a little bit. But I think at the same time, though, it really depends on who that person is working with at the institution and who is be able to have those transparent and honest conversations. That will be difficult. It's not going to be easy. But tell them, look, this is why we can't do it. And here's X, Y, Z, P, Q, R, S reason why we can't. Yeah. So, so you bring up a really good uh, idea there. So around the Penn State issue with, say, a percentage of people wanting to burn their diplomas and another percentage, mm -hmm. maybe it's half and half, I don't know. But mm -hmm. as the country becomes more polarized politically, which at this point, mm -hmm. it looks like we're headed there, right? Yeah, every day, it seems like there's, there's more rhetoric on, on every side of the topic. And, and it seems mm -hmm. like there's, you know, what used to be maybe more contiguous cultural groups are, are now fractured, right? How does, mm -hmm. how does an organization, any organization really, cater to so many different philosophical and and political mm -hmm. priorities with donors when they may not even be things that are that are on the surface right these a lot of these things are are yeah. things that people don't talk about until they get really ticked off right so does, does yeah. that leave organizations yeah. in a position where they just have to be sort of average and not talk about anything that's controversial or do you think that the alternative mm -hmm. is put a stake in the ground and and organizationally be who you are and collect the people and the supporters who most believe that or what, what's your take on that i think that and that's so interesting because i am a moderate democrat but i live very live in a very red state yes you do. um so i yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for myself and some of my friends that are also those moderate democrats we really look around and we're just and we we there has to be the Someone said, I forget who it was, I was in an Uber, I was in an Uber and I was talking to the Uber driver and he said to me, when did it become bad thing to talk about politics? Mm. And I just went, good point. Because I mean, if you're able to have a thoughtful, educated conversation and educated as in like, you're not going to jump down each other's throat or anything like that about and be able to talk about why you're coming from this point of view. I don't see a problem with it. I have donors that bring it up now. And some of them are conservatives and, you know, I tell them politely, you know, this is my point of view and we can have a good conversation about it and not feel like we're at pitchforks at each other. Right. So I think when it comes to organizations and their donor base, I think if it's, I wouldn't bring it up every time you meet with somebody, that's not, that's not solving anything. <laughs> but I think if you're able to, if, if it is brought up, or there's certain things that the university or the organization is doing, you need to be able to be, first of all, fully aware of what the background is and why you're having those decisions. But I think also be able to have those intelligent conversations with them so that they're aware of where you're coming from. And sometimes, and what, what, there was another fundraiser I was talking to 
where they said um, there was one donor that they were talking to trying to get them to give to their organization, but they really had a passion for another organization somewhere else. Hmm. And it's like, they might not be a good fit for your organization, but if they're a fit for your friends or one that's down the street, be that good fundraiser and help them out. And for all you know, they might want to support both because they are conne- you're connecting both of them together. Sure. And I've seen, we've heard of that and we've seen that. So I think if anything, it's more or less, you have to have an open dialogue with people. You can't just shut people out or shut people down. I have a great friend out here in Nashville who is, is definitely a, a, a Republican conservative. And um, we, we, we give each other a hard time about it jokingly, but he also knows that he can call me and ask me, okay, this is going on right now. What is this all about? And what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> and we're, but he's able to see both sides, which he hasn't been able to really do before with other moderate Democratic friends. So <laughs> that's kind of the things that I've been seeing from like a friendship side, but also with an organizational side as well. So I think it's just being honest, having a good conversation, but making your, your solid and where your thoughts are, where your organization wants to go. So I feel like you're taking us right back to where we started this entire episode and conversation, which is it, it's all about the relationship, right? It's all about the relationship and it's all about communication. Yeah, I think that's yeah. so critical. So I think that's all we have for the day. I really cool. appreciate you being on here. I think some, some great questions and answers that we had. Yeah. If, if folks want to get in touch with you, if they have questions or, or want, want to connect, what's the, what's the best way for people to reach you? So LinkedIn is probably the best. You can find me, Amanda Fabrizio Grezik, comma M-E-D, although I think my last name will pop up anyway <laughs> through LinkedIn, or you can message me on my blog, which is fabfundraising.blogspot.com, and I'll make sure I'll send you those links, uh, Andrew, so you can connect them on the show notes. Perfect. We'll get them in the show notes. Thanks again for being here. Best of luck at your uh, next donor visit in a little while. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Andrew. I appreciate the conversation. Looking forward to chatting again the next time we need to get to do this. Absolutely. Me too. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, It will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.